Well, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be focusing on verses 8 through 12 this morning. And I want to start by reminding you of Peter's flow of thought up to this point so we can see where today's passage fits in what he's saying. So remember, back in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he introduces himself to his readers. And then in chapter 1, verses 3 through 13, he urges them to set their hope fully on the joy that they will have in beholding Jesus Christ forever in heaven with the redeemed from every nation, tongue, and tribe. So he urges, set your hope fully on the joy you'll have when you behold Jesus Christ. Now, one reason he emphasizes that so much is because when we do that, we will be able to do the next things that Peter calls us to. Namely, verses 14 through 21, we'll be able to overcome sin in our lives, that hope we have in Christ will overcome the sin that's in our hearts. We'll be able to fervently love each other. That's chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 10. And then we'll be able to live God-glorifying lives before lost people around us. We'll be able to live lives with such love and such humility and such grace that people will, as Ben's going to be preaching next week, ask us about the hope that's within us. Now that last section, chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12, gets a little complicated here, can be broken down into five sections. Next slide. Oh, it's already there, okay. Here's the five sections. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, a general command to live honorably before lost people so they can see God's glory in us and be saved. Chapter 2, 13 through 17, he urges us, another way to do that is to be subject to the government and any other organizations we're a part of so that we are submitting, honoring them, respecting them. Chapter 2, 18 through 25, he urges servants to be subject to their masters. And we can apply that to our employment situations. Chapter 3, 1 through 7, urges wives to be subject to their husbands and for husbands to honor their wives. And then that brings us to today's passage. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, where he urges us to live in loving unity with our fellow believers and to do good to anyone who would harm us. That's chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. So let's focus now on 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 through 12. And we want to start by asking the question, what's Peter's main point in this passage? We're working on our Bible study skills here at Grace Church. And one of the first questions we should ask about any passage we're studying is, what's the author's main point? What's Peter's main point here? And every author will give us clues to show us the main point or points. And some of the most obvious clues are commands we've been seeing. So let's read through these verses and notice what commands Peter gives. Start with verse 8. Now, verse 8 sounds like he's talking about our relationships with other believers. Look at what he says. Finally, so he's, he's bringing this section to a close, now bringing it to a summary. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That sounds like relationships with believers, unity of mind, brotherly love. Then in verses 9 through 12, though, he broadens it out and he wants to talk about how we respond to anybody, brother or sister in Christ, or anybody who might hurt us. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For, and now he quotes from Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So lots of commands. Did you notice how many commands? I think there's, I don't know, depending on how you count, 11 or 12 commands. But to make these commands more real to us, here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about a situation in which these commands would be hard to obey so we can think through what would it mean to obey them and I want us to get a sense of how hard it would be to obey these commands. So here's a situation I want to propose to you. Let's say that after dating for a little while, you become engaged to be married. Okay, whether you're the guy, whether you're the gal, you've been dating together for a while, and you are now engaged, and you are so excited because you've been waiting for this day, praying for this day, longing for this day, and you're going to get married. And so you call up one of your closest friends and say, let's get together, and you meet and you say, I've got some amazing news to share with you. I'm getting married. This is just, I'm so happy I get to tell this to you. Now, don't tell anybody else because I want the joy. I'm gonna go through all my friends one by one and I'm gonna tell them, I've been looking forward to this for years. This is like a once in a lifetime joy opportunity. So don't tell anybody else. I'm gonna go through one by one. They say, no problem. But a few hours later, that person's with a group of all your friends, your friends, and they're just like, they're so excited. They just, they can't help themselves and they just decide to go ahead and tell them all that you're engaged. And then you call up a friend and they say, I hear the good news. And you're thinking, what good news? Well, I hear you're engaged. Yes, your friend told all of us, we're so excited for you. And you're trying to be excited, but you're frustrated. Can you feel that? This was like a once in a lifetime joy opportunity that you were gonna have to tell all your friends. And now your friend has stolen that from you. In fact, they, don't even, they think, what's the big deal? I, I couldn't help myself. And you're feeling a little bit angry and you're feeling quite disappointed and you're sensing bitterness rising in your heart. So can you feel that? Okay? Now, Peter would command us to do the following. Have unity of mind with that person who broke the confidence. Have unity of mind with them. Have sympathy toward them. Hmm. Have brotherly or sisterly love toward them. Have a tender heart toward them. Have a humble mind toward them. Not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but bless to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, to turn from evil and do good. Those are all pretty much the same thing. Clump those together. And then with this person to seek peace with them and to pursue peace with them. Now let's go through these one at a time and unpack what they would mean. And again, I want you to feel how difficult this would. So we're, just, we're being real here. We're being honest. So we all understand this is not easy to do. That's my goal. So first, Peter in verse 8 calls us to have unity of mind with this person. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you agree with them that what they did was no big deal. You think it was a big deal. In fact, it might be appropriate at some point 
once you've gotten this all worked out between you and the Lord so you weren't bitter or angry anymore, it might be appropriate for you to sit down with them and share with them humbly and gently why it was a big deal. Okay, so that's, that's a very good possibility there. But unity of mind would mean that you are willing to overlook what they did and to have harmony with them in spite of what they did. That's what unity of mind would mean. You're willing to overlook what they did and to be in harmony, to be in unity with them in spite of what they did. So can you feel how hard that would be to do? Second, Peter calls us to have sympathy. Well, sympathy just means caring for someone, right? This would mean that even though your friend wronged you and took joy from you, it means you would still have compassion towards them. You would still feel care towards them. You would love them. You would ask them how they were doing. And you would ask that from the heart. How are you doing? I care about you. Can you feel how difficult that would be? Third, verse 8, Peter calls us to have brotherly love. Now, brotherly love, one of the implications of that is, you know, in families with your brothers and sisters, there's a family bond or commitment that you have with your brothers, with your sisters. Okay, but now this person has wronged you, you're thinking. They took a once-in-a-lifetime joy from you. So can you feel how hard it would be to want there to be any kind of bond or commitment towards them? I'm not sure I want to be committed to them anymore. I'm not sure I want any bonds of friendship to be between us anymore. That's what would be in our hearts. And yet Peter calls us to have brotherly love toward them. Fourth, verse 8. A tender heart. Have a tender heart towards this person. What is a tender heart? A tender heart feels affection. A tender heart is soft towards this person, caring, affectionate towards this person. But how can you feel affectionate towards someone who has wronged you, who disregarded what you asked of them and went ahead and shared the story anyway? How could you be tender-hearted towards them? Fifth, also in verse 8, Peter calls us to have a humble mind. Humility just simply means putting others first, not holding on to your rights, not holding on to how you've been wronged. That's what humble mind would mean. Now again, it might be appropriate for you to sit down with them and share with them how you feel about what they did and to help them understand that that was not appropriate. Nothing wrong with doing that from love and for their good. But a humble mind would mean not holding on to your rights. It would mean not clinging on to how you were wronged. And it would mean letting go of your privileges, prerogatives, rights. And that would be hard. Sixth, verse 9, I clump these next three together. Don't repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but bless. Verse 10, keep our tongue from evil, our lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, turn away from evil and do good. I clump these together because our natural response whenever somebody wrongs us is to wrong them back, right? There's just this desire to mm, get back at them. That's our natural sin nature response is to get back at them. And there's all kinds of ways we can do that. There's more subtle ways like just nurturing a grudge inside of you. Kind of the, the slow burn. Mm. No one else can see. You look like a perfectly happy person, but inside is, mm, okay? Or then it can come out like you're talking with some friends and saying, do you know what they did? No. What? They 
blah, blah, blah. They did? They did. And then get all these friends on your side against them or maybe even move into deceit where you start to lie about something they did to make them look even worse to your friends. Those are all ways we do this, right? From the slow burn of nurturing a grudge to actually lying about somebody to make them look bad to other people. And yet Peter would say, don't. Instead, bless them. Instead, do good for them. That's what Peter would call us to do. Last one, verse 11, seventh. Seek peace and pursue it. Think about this person who broke the confidence. Think about how easy it would be to have there be tension in the relationship. How easy it would be to have there be a sense of awkwardness between the two of you, right? That's what would be there. But Peter says, don't let that be there. I mean, it'd be very easy for the relationship just to kind of drift apart, right? With the awkwardness and the pain and the hurt. But Peter says, seek peace with that person. Pursue peace with that person. Nurture the relationship. Deepen your love for them. Strengthen your friendship with them. Move toward them with love and care and compassion to make the relationship become even stronger than it was before. Whoa, Peter, really? Peter would say, really? Now, do you all feel, first of all, how hard this would be? First of all, do you understand what he's calling us to do? I, I wanted to go over this point by point with this difficult situation because it's really easy for us to just read these verses and say, yeah, I got that, I got that, I got that, I got that. It's like, wait a minute. Let's think about what Peter's really calling us to do here. This is not easy to do. But now, Peter doesn't just tell us what to do. He also tells us why it's so important to do these things. And he gives us two reasons. So let's raise that as our next question. Why is this so important? Why is it so important to obey these commands? And look at what Peter tells us. This is verses 9 through 12. He gives us a couple different statements of reasons why. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain... And that's the word inherit, literally, that you may obtain, inherit a blessing. For, another reason, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. In verse 12, another reason. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, as I read these verses, it seems to me that there's really two reasons that Peter's giving us for why it is so important that we obey these commands. There's two reasons. One is because obedience to these commands, obedience by faith, letting faith work itself out in love, that will bring us more of the joy of God's presence now. That's one reason. I see that in verse 10. See if you agree. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. So if we keep our tongue from evil, if we obey these commands, we will love life. We will see good days. So if we're trusting Jesus, he's filling our hearts. Faith is working its out in love. We are doing what Peter calls us to do here. 
we are keeping our tongue from evil, then we will love life and see good days. Now, throughout the scripture, we see that loving life and seeing good days does not mean a life that's free from stress or a free life that's free from problems. I thought about Colossians 3, who is our life? We sang about it this morning, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. So loving life means more of Jesus and seeing good days. I thought about Psalm 78, verse 20, Psalm 73, verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Good days are days full of the Lord's presence. And so what he's promising us here is if we obey these commands by faith in Jesus Christ, God will give us more of a sense of life in Jesus, more of a sense of God's nearness, more joy in God's presence. And that's also verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That means God's eyes on you with love and care and compassion, his favor coming upon you. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. So that means sweet fellowship of prayer between the Lord. You're, you're praying, you know he's hearing, and he's answering. Beautiful prayer is taking place. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if we're not trusting Jesus, if we're not obeying in terms of these commands, that shows we're not saved and God will be against us with anger. So that's what Peter is saying. First reason, if we obey these commands, we will have more of the joy of God's presence, God's nearness, and God's favor. Now let me just clarify, it's not that our obedience earns or deserves or merits more of God's nearness and joy. Because as we've said before, even our best moments of obedience are still tinged with sin, right? Sinful motives, impure attitudes. We are not completely free from sin until heaven. So our obedience, even our best moments, can't earn anything good from God. So why does God bless us then with more of his presence? It's all because of Jesus Christ his death paying for our sins. He was punished for the sins of all who trust him. And so because of Jesus, God chooses to mercifully reward our undeserving obedience with more of the joy of his nearness. So that's one reason. This is so important that we do this. We want more of God's nearness, more of God's favor, more of God's presence. So obey these because that's what will happen as we do. God will reward our undeserving obedience with more of his presence. Now there's a second reason. It's a little bit harder to explain. It's the end of verse 9. It's that obedience will give the assurance of eternal life. Verse 9 is a complicated verse. And very godly, wise teachers, much smarter than me, have very different opinions on this. So I just prayed, 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 prayed. I've changed my mind a couple times this week. But I think, at least I've got enough confidence to share with you what I think it is now. Now your job is to study, be like good Bereans, and search the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is right. So here's what I think this is talking about. Read verse nine again. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, here's the reason why, for to this you were called, that is you were called to not revile, not to do evil, you were called to bless, that you may obtain, literally that's the Greek word inherit, a blessing. One question is what is the blessing? And I believe the blessing is eternal life. And the reason is because that word obtain literally is the word inherit. Many other versions translate it that way. I'm not sure why the ESV does not. I wish that it did. 
but just letting you know that's what the literal word is. It's, and whenever Peter, when Peter talks about inheriting or talks about the inheritance, he's talking about eternal life. So that's what I believe the blessing is here in verse 9. He's saying that our obedience will give us the assurance that we have eternal life. Now, why is that? All through the scriptures we read that genuine faith in Jesus is what saves us, right? We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by faith in Christ. But if your faith is genuine, what will flow out of your life? Works and obedience, right? And so one of the ways you can tell if your faith is genuine, one of the ways you can have assurance of eternal life is by seeing obedience in your life. Here's a verse that teaches that. Look at James chapter two. This is from verses 14 through 17. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So here's the scenario. Somebody says, oh, I, I trust Jesus. I believe in Jesus, but there's no obedience. There's no works taking place in their life. James says, can that faith save him? And the answer clearly in the context of that verse is no, because they don't have genuine faith. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So genuine faith always produces works, always produces obedience. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by obedience. We're saved by what? Okay, we're not saved by works. We're saved by, thank you, faith. And genuine faith, true faith, saving faith always flows out in obedience. I thought about if you're, if you're a vegetable, any vegetable gardeners here, you like to plant little vegetables. Okay, so some seeds end up working and some seeds end up not working. Anybody else experience that, okay? So how can you tell if your seed works? Well, you plant it and then if nothing sprouts, it's like, that was a dead seed. No works, no obedience, dead seed. If something sprouts, though, a little green thing starts to poke up, it's like, oh, it's a good seed. That was a good seed. So if you think there's faith, but there's no sprouts of obedience or works sprouting up, that's not real faith. That's not saving faith. If there's obedience sprouting up, if there's works sprouting up for Christ's sake, out of love for Christ, obeying him, that shows that the faith is, is real. Now, with that in mind, read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 again. That's what I think Peter's talking about here. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing, inherit a blessing, which means you were called to obey in this way because by obeying, you will be assured that you will inherit the blessing of eternal life. That's what Peter's talking about here. Now let me just dig this a little bit deeper. This is, this is so crucial. This issue of faith and works and assurance, this is like very much a foundation of our Christian lives. And if we're not clear on these foundational truths, the building of our Christian lives is gonna be a little teetery, a little tottery, a little shaky. I want it to be rock solid strong here for us at Grace Church. So let me just spell this out in a little bit more detail. We've all sinned against God, the Bible teaches us. And we all face his judgment because of our sin. We face his judgment forever. Now, if you're aware of that and you think, okay, I'm going to try to be good enough 
by my obedience, by my works, I'm going to try to be good enough to earn forgiveness from God, you won't be forgiven by God. If you try to make up for your wrong by doing good so that your good outweighs your bad, you won't enter heaven. And the reason for that is twofold. One is we can't make ourselves good. Our sin nature is strong. It's there. I mean, we can do a few outwardly good things, maybe a random act of kindness, you know, grit your teeth and do something nice for somebody once a day, maybe. We can do outward good, but inward, flowing from love for Christ, love for God's glory, a heart that flows out with good and kindness towards others, a heart that's full of worship towards Jesus Christ, that truly from the heart forgives people for Jesus' sake. We can't do that. God can do that. He can change us, but we're going to come to that in a moment. So one reason we can't make ourselves good enough is because we can't make ourselves good enough. And also, even if we could live perfectly the rest of our lives, we still need to be punished for our past sins. So it's hopeless trying to be saved by becoming good enough. Now, I want to really stress this because so many people believe this. Every other religion teaches it except for what Jesus taught, and many people who go to Christian churches somehow think that. So I don't want anybody here to think that. It's hopeless for you when it comes to being saved by how good, how obedient, how righteous you are in yourself. It is hopeless for you. You have got to understand that or you'll never be saved. So then where's the good news? It's that God loves us. God is so compassionate, so merciful, and at great cost to himself, he sent his own son, Jesus, and Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, and he died the death that we deserved to pay for the sins of all who would trust him And the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, when you turn to Jesus and trust him from the heart, at that moment, at least three amazing things happen. All your sins are forgiven. All your sins washed away. You are filthy with sin and they are washed away. Whiter than snow. You're spotless, cleansed because of what Jesus did. So all your sins are forgiven. Secondly, Jesus starts to change you. His power comes into your life and you start to, you love God. You, you'd love to worship him. You forgive people from the heart for Jesus' sake. You're saying no to sin because you want to honor Christ. Faith working itself out in love, you're, you start to change. He changes you by his power and then he fills you with his love. He fills you with his joy. He satisfies you with his presence. That comes by faith alone. Not by trying to be good enough, just by turning to him in your hopelessness and saying, Jesus Christ, I trust you. I bring nothing except my sinfulness to the table. I'm lost without your mercy. Forgive me, change me, satisfy me through your work on the cross, through your resurrection, and he will. You'll be saved. So we're not saved by works. We can't make ourselves good enough. We're saved by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Now, because your faith in him is genuine then, and he started to change you, you will start to have sprouts of works and of obedience. You'll see your heart changing. You will love people who are in need. You'll be generous in caring for the poor. You'll be resisting covetousness and greed. You'll be fighting against lust. You'll be forgiving those who hurt you. You'll be reading the scriptures. You'll be praying. None of these will you be doing perfectly, and none of these will you be doing sinlessly, Are we clear on that? 
but there will, you'll be doing them growingly. Okay? Not perfectly, not sinlessly, but growingly. And you'll see my heart's being changed. That shows that my faith is genuine. Okay, so now let's say uh, you, you die and you're standing before God. And, and God looks at you and he says, um, you've sinned against me. So how could I let you into my heaven? He's asking that with love and with compassion, but he's asking that, okay? Now, if your answer is, um, because my good outweighed my bad, or if your answer is, because I was good, I was better than, than Joe or George or somebody else, or on average, I was better than most people, or something like that where it's referring to your own obedience, your own works, your own goodness, then God would say, I am I'm sorry. Um, you deserve judgment. I love people, I care for you, but I'm just and I must punish your sin and, and you would not go to heaven. Do, do we understand that? But if instead of answering that way, you said, again, he looks at you and he says, you know, you've sinned against me and um, on what basis can I let you into my heaven? And if you say, not because of anything in me, I am so sorry that I've sinned against you, but you sent Jesus at great cost to yourself. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus paid for my sins, and, and, and I've, I've trusted him. So it's because of what your son has done alone. It's because of his righteousness, his shed blood, his death paying for my sins. That's how I can be welcomed into heaven. And God would smile, and he would say, that's exactly right. And then, and then he would say, now, Genuine faith always shows itself in works, in obedience. Let's look at your life. And then you'd go back to your life and you'd say, well, look, look at this. You are forgiving this person from your heart. And look at this here. That person who broke confidence and told about how you were engaged, you're really pursuing an even closer relationship with them because of your love for Christ. That's beautiful. And look here, you're, you're worshiping, and here you're, being, you're caring for the poor, and here you're sharing the gospel with somebody because you want to glorify Christ. This is beautiful. Your faith is genuine. Welcome into everlasting joy. That's how it would work. Okay? But what if there were no works there? What if there were no sprouts there? What if there was no obedience there? No from the heart, for Jesus' sake, out of love for God, forgiving, caring, sharing your testimony, fighting against sin, not no faith working itself out in love. What if there was, was none of that there? Then God would say, I'm sorry, you say you have faith, but genuine faith always produces not sinless obedience and not perfect obedience, but growing obedience. And he would say, I am very sorry, but I am just. Your sins have not been forgiven. You must punished, be punished forever. That's why this is so important. Now, I was talking to Jan about this yesterday, and a good question, what about the thief on the cross? How many, how many works did the thief on the cross have? Good question. And I think you would agree, well, he didn't have a whole lot of time, but he did have some works, Right? Remember the, the other thief who was not saved and his response to Christ was rude and arrogant, but this thief, remember what he said to Jesus? Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? 
Now see, the father will point, when the, when the thief is standing before the father, the father will point to that, look what you said on the cross. That's, that's beautiful sprout. That's faith showing obedience. That's faith showing change. That's, that shows your faith is genuine. Welcome into paradise. So even the thief on the cross had plenty of works to be showing that his faith was genuine so he's welcomed in. Do we see that? He had a whole lifetime of sin before that. Doesn't make any difference. Faith in Christ, forgiven, saved, changed, welcomed into eternal joy. Now, can you see then why it is so important that we obey these commands? One reason is because in God's mercy, as we do, he will reward our undeserving obedience with even more of the joy of his presence. As you work through the pain, as you seek to forgive, as you move towards this person with compassion and love, God will be having his face shining upon you. His, he, his ears will be open to your prayer. You will love life and see good days by enjoying his presence. He will bring more of his presence upon you, which will make it worth it all. That's the first reason. And the second reason is because as you love this person who hurts you, as you don't speak ill of them, as you actually speak to honor them as, as in whatever ways you can, for Christ's sake, as you seek to have unity of mind and a tender heart towards them, you'll be able to look at that and say, that's amazing, God, that you would help this heart to live this way. This faith must be genuine. You've saved me. You've changed me. Thank you. I know I have real faith. I know I'm going to heaven. I have assurance of the blessing of eternal life. So those are the two reasons why it is so important that we obey these commands. Do you see those reasons? I hope we're all stirred. This, we, we need to do this. More of the joy of God's presence and we'll be assured that we have the blessing of eternal life. Now one last question. How can we obey these commands? Remember what Peter has already said when we gave the overview of his flow of thought up to this point. Put your hope fully on the joy you'll have in beholding Jesus forever because that will enable you to do all these things, including these things we've seen in this passage. The joy of hope in Christ will change your heart so that you will do what might seem to be very strange things towards people who hurt you, like have unity of mind with them, sympathy towards them, brotherly love towards them, tender heart towards them, a humble mind towards them, not repay evil for evil, not, not to speak against them, not deceive in terms of slandering them, but doing good towards them and blessing them and seeking peace and pursuing it. So the key is to set our hope fully on the joy of being with Jesus forever. Now, how do we do that? Here's what I would encourage. Open up First Peter to chapter one, verses three through 13 and read over this description of the living hope that we've been born again to through Jesus Christ, how it is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, how it is reserved, kept, protected by the power of God through faith. We're protected for that inheritance, that salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Read through chapter one, verses three through 13, and pray over those verses. And as you do that, the Holy Spirit will strengthen your faith in the truth of those verses. He will change your heart with the beauty of those verses. He will fill your heart with, with joy, humble joy that will change your attitude towards this other person. That's how 
we go about doing this. Now, I want you to think about this a little bit. We are setting our hope on the joy of being with Jesus forever. So just yesterday, I was, I was working on this. I thought, okay, Lord, how can I communicate this so that we'll, we'll have some sense of, of what it'll be like to see Jesus? And here's, here's three aspects of that that I thought of. See if this helps you. It helped me yesterday. Imagine being in the very presence of Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man, and you're standing in the presence of the one who has such love, such love that he went to the cross for you. And you're standing face to face with Jesus who has that kind of love and compassion and care and mercy and grace. And you're face to face with Jesus who has that love. So I thought about his love. I thought about his power. Imagine being face to face with Jesus whose power, think about his power. His power commanded blind eyes to see and they saw. His power commanded dead Lazarus to rise from the dead and Lazarus came forth from the tomb simply by Jesus, come forth, power. Jesus' power stills, calms, storms. Jesus' power, I mean, you think of lots of examples, raised paralyzed people so that they could walk, withered hands so that they could move. The list just goes on and on and on. Multiplied five loaves and two fish to be enough food to feed thousands. You're gonna be standing before Jesus who has that power. We've got love, went to the cross, we've got power, and then you'll be standing before the one who has so much glory, so much glory, sheer blazing glory that right this moment, millions of angels are on their faces before him with white, hot worship, passionate worship and adoration. They're just delighting in the beauty, the glory, the majesty of Jesus Christ. So we've got love, we've got power, we've got glory, and you're gonna be there face to face with him. Hope fully in the joy that you will have in beholding Christ forever. That's what Peter's talking about here. Now, when we do that, what will happen? Our hearts will be changed. So think about this person who broke confidence with you. This is how this would work. You'd be able to have unity of mind with them. You would. It's not that you're trying to have unity of mind. When you set your hope on Christ and that joy that fills you and the humility of knowing this is all by grace, that joyful humility will change you so you will be able to have unity of mind with them. Yes, what they did was thoughtless and wrong. You're not agreeing with them that it was right, but you will see that you both have an eternity of joy before you. And that massive commonality between you and them overcomes the differences over what they did. And you will have unity of mind with them because the reality of seeing Jesus face to face far outweighs the differences that you have. Unity of mind. Second, you'll be able to have sympathy towards them. This humble joy that you have in Christ as you set your hope fully on, on seeing him, that will 
wash away the bitterness, it'll wash away the disappointment, and it'll, it'll fill you, and humble joy will overflow into sympathy and compassion for them. Third, you'll feel brotherly love toward them. What they did was wrong, absolutely. And because of that, you naturally, in your own sinful nature, you don't feel any family, spiritual family bond with them. But the hope of beholding Jesus in all of his glory will enable you to forgive them. It'll enable you to love them, to be committed to them. They are my brother in Christ. They are my sister in Christ. I love this person for Christ's sake. That'll be the reality of your heart when you set your hope fully on who Christ is. Fourth, you'll have a tender heart towards them. See, many of you have experienced this, haven't you? It's amazing how this works. You can be so bitter towards someone and so angry towards someone. And then when you turn and set your heart on Christ and you pray and you worship and you ask for his help, show me your glory, fill me with your spirit, show me the prize that I have in you. And as that starts to happen in your heart, you will notice that the anger and the bitterness is just washed away and it's replaced by tenderness, affection. Before your heart was hard, now your heart was, is tender. And what happened in between was you set your hope on the joy you have in Christ. Fifth, a humble mind. The hope of heaven will so fill you that you, don't, you won't be holding on to your rights. I have the right to tell my own friends about my engagement. You won't be holding on to how they've wronged you. They did wrong against me. You'll, you'll let your rights go because your heart's filled with Christ and you'll be able to forgive them and love them. Sixth, not repaying evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but blessing, keeping your tongue from evil, lips from speaking deceit, turning away from evil, and doing good. Remember we talked about the natural response when somebody hurts you is to seek revenge against them, right? Nurturing the grudge, or telling other people, do you know what they did? No, yes, they did that. Everybody gets upset about them, or even lying, deceiving about them to making it even worse in terms of what people think about them. Well, when you set your heart on the joy of beholding Jesus, what will happen in your heart is beautiful and amazing. Your desire for revenge will lessen. It will diminish. And your joy in Christ and your humility by his, in his grace will increase. And you will be able to bless them and do good for them. Instead of speaking against them, when you're with people, you will want to honor them in whatever way you can in the conversation. You want to speak well of them. You want to serve them, care for them, be kind to them. And then finally, seventh, you will seek peace and pursue it. You won't let the conflict remain. You won't let the tension or the awkwardness remain. You will do what is so shocking and will so display Christ to people around you. You will move toward them. You will seek peace with them. You will pursue peace with them. Even if they never agree with you about what they did, you will seek to nurture that relationship, strengthen that relationship, deepen that relationship, and that will display that Christ is your treasure. Because you must have a joy filling you that is so satisfying that you're able to continue to pursue and love someone who has hurt you as deeply as they did. You can't do this by yourself. I can't do this by myself. We, we can't just grit our teeth and try to forgive this person or grit our teeth and try to be kind to this person. That's not Christianity. We turn to Jesus Christ. Faith works itself out in love. 
So we look to Jesus and we trust his promises about living hope. We see who he is. We set our hope fully on the joy that'll be ours when we see him face to face. And that humble joy that fills our hearts when we do that will change our hearts. And you will want to love them. You will want to forgive them. You'll want to be in unity. You'll want to be affectionate, tenderhearted, seeking peace and pursuing. It all starts with setting your hope on the joy you'll have in beholding Christ. And see, the beautiful news of this is when you do that, your heart will change. Your heart will change. Faith works itself out in love. And then when you see that happening, when you see how your heart is changing, when you see that you're forgiving, unity with this person, love for this person, when you see that your heart is changing, you'll see that your faith is real. This is a miracle. I could never have done this. My faith must be real. That means I'm going to heaven. That means I'm really saved. I'm gonna be in the presence of God forever. Oh, the joy of assurance of salvation. So you'll know that your faith is real and that you are assured of receiving the blessing of eternal life and you will experience right then and there more of God's favor, more of God's nearness, more of the joy of his, his presence. Remember, this all comes from setting your hope on the joy of beholding Christ forever. That's where we start. Everything else will flow from that. Let's pray. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Go ahead, stand up. Father, I'm sure that we all have areas, relationships right now where we need to apply what we've read. What you call us to is impossible for us to do in our sin nature, in who we are in ourselves. But Lord, we see that as we set our hearts upon Christ, as we let the truth of our living hope fill us with humble joy, our hearts will be changed. Forgiveness will come. Compassion will come. Tenderness will come. Brotherly love and affection will come. So Lord, help us to start with Jesus, to start with living hope in Jesus, trusting that as we do that, you will change our hearts and we praise you that you always will. We praise you that we can have assurance of eternal life. We praise you that we have more of your presence now as we love and that it all comes from setting our hope on Christ. Thank you.